Matthew chapter 27. We left off last week in, uh, with verse 10. So we're going to pick up in verse 11. But before we do, um, tonight we're going to read through the account of the final hours of Jesus' life on earth. And there's a lot in here. There's a lot, lot, lot in here. We're just going to scratch the surface. But there's a couple of things that I really want you to take note of. Um, if you're one that jots things down in a notebook or, or uh, in the margin of your Bible or whatever, I want you to take note of this. Take note of Jesus' resolve. Okay, Take note of his attitude. Take note of his heart toward you. Toward you and I. Um, you see, the person of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ is the predominant theme of the Bible. The whole Old Testament is um, a foretelling or a foreshadowing of the coming Messiah. The law, the prophets, the Psalms, the poetry, the books of poetry, there's so many types of Christ, so many types of sacrifice, salvation, um, kings and kingdoms. And, and the person and the work of Jesus Christ is the predominant theme of the entire Bible. When you're in the Old Testament, it's the Messiah's coming, the Messiah's coming, the Messiah's coming. When you get into the Gospels, it's the good news that the, the Messiah is here. He's here. You get into the book of Acts, and it's the promoting of uh, the lordship of Christ. And then Paul's epistles, all the way through Paul's epistles, he's talking about the lordship of Christ and yielding to the Spirit of God and receiving Christ as Lord and Savior. It's all about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Then you get to the book of Revelation, that last book, that apocalyptic book, and it talks about his return, his second coming and his setting up of his millennial kingdom and then his eternal kingdom. So here's a few things just to jot down about, about Jesus if you're a note taker. The reason why the person in the work of Jesus Christ is predominant theme of the Bible is that he is God. He is God. He became a human being. He lived a sinless life. He died by crucifixion. He was buried and he rose again from the dead. He is the only and the all-sufficient Savior of the world. He's the only one. He's the only answer. So he lived, Jesus lived a sinless life in order that he could put that sinless life on the account of any and all who would put their faith in him. So you and I have done that. We've put our faith in Jesus Christ and I want you to notice, because I'm going to take you through a, a, a series of, of scriptures here before we read this account of the last hours of Jesus' life on earth. I'm going to take you through a series of scriptures, but it's important that you understand there's, a, there's accounting terms being used here. Accounting terms, as, as if we were uh, like a bank account. Terms that an accountant would use. Jesus wanted to put his sinless life on our account if we'd put our faith in him. Jesus took upon himself the sins of the entire world at the cross of Calvary in order to atone for any and all who would put their faith in him. He's going to atone for the sins. Now, you've heard that word atonement. 
And when I've described that or given a definition of that word atonement, I always say, break it down into three words. At one meant. Instead of atone, break it in half. At one. What God is doing is he's reconciling us back unto himself through his son Jesus Christ. So there's an at one meant. We're, we're separate from God because of the fall of man back in Genesis 3. We're all separate. We're born separated from God. But there's an atonement. There's an at-one-ment. He brings us back to himself. And then Jesus, and this is the gospel, he was reconciling God and man by his substitutionary death on the cross. Jesus took our place. Wouldn't be any different than if you were crossing the highway and somebody came, and here, here comes a truck and it's just about ready to take you out and somebody pushes you out of the way and takes the hit for you. That's what Jesus did. You see, we were on our way to the cross and he stepped in in our place and said, Father, I'll do that. I'll take that. Jesus was reconciling God and man by his substitutionary death on the cross. His sinless life, his torturous death, you're going to read about that tonight, his burial and his resurrection is the gospel. It's the good news. And by the way, the Bible tells us that it's the power of God unto salvation for those that believe. It's the power of God. So you're not the power of God. I'm not the power of God. It's the gospel. So anytime you have an opportunity to share the gospel, that good news, again, Jesus' sinless life, his torturous death, his burial, and his resurrection, that's the gospel. And it's for each of us today. Now, consider the following verses pertaining to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We're going to start in Matthew's Gospel, but you've got to back up just a little. Chapter 20, in Matthew's Gospel, and verse 28. This will be a review for those of us that are right, you know, finishing up Matthew's Gospel here. Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28. You'll notice that that's red letters. If you have a red letter edition, that's Jesus speaking. And he closes this statement by saying, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, you know what a ransom is. That's when you pay for someone else's life. And that's what Jesus was doing. That's, what his, that's why he came. He came to give his life a ransom for many. So keep that in mind. We're talking about the person and the work of Jesus Christ, okay? Now, you can jot these verses down as we go. We're going we're gonna to continue to turn uh, to the right. So this time, turn with me to John chapter 12. I want to read verses 27 and 28. John 12, 27 and 28. All these references will be on the tape if you can't jot them down fast enough or tried to make it easy by keeping them in sequence and going to the right, so we'll just see how, how it plays out here. John twelve twenty seven. Now, my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Is that heavy? Jesus is predicting his own death here, and, and he says, should I pray that the Father re- take, you know, take this away? 
even though my heart's troubled, should I say, save me from this hour? No, Jesus knows that this is why he came. He came to give his life a ransom for many. We just read Matthew's Gospel. This time turn to Romans. Romans chapter 3 and verse 22. Keep going to the right. Skip a couple books there. And to John, Acts, Romans. Romans chapter 3 verse 22. This time I'm going to read three verses here. 22 through 25. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to note that well, that the righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not our righteousness. It comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Think about that. God presented him a sacrifice of atonement. Now, the, the Jewish people were very, very familiar with sacrifices. The whole Old Testament was based on sacrifice and a priesthood. The atonement, the at-one-ment, the bringing man back together with God. And it says God presented him a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. When you believe that Jesus paid in full the penalty for sin and death, your sin and your death at Calvary, you're covered by his blood. This time, Romans chapter 5, so just a couple pages or a page there, Romans chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Verse 9 reads, Since we have now been justified by His blood, okay, we just read that, since we've now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled, to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? You see, Jesus paid it. He paid it. This time, 2 Corinthians. After Romans, you'll see the first book of Corinthians, second book of Corinthians, chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5. One of my favorite portions of Scripture here. I'm going to start with verse 18 and I'm going to read through verse 21. 2 Corinthians 5.18 All this is from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ. And that word, you know, means Messiah. Through, through Messiah. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, not only is He saving us, but He's giving us a task. You ever wonder why God doesn't just save us and yank us out of here? So I wondered. I, I want, Lord, why don't you just save us and call us home? Because he wants to use us. He wants to give us this ministry of reconciliation. In other words, he reconciles us to himself, but then he uses us to reconcile others to him. Listen to this. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. 
We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. Is that incredible? God would trust us with that. I mean, he could have used angels. He could have just poked his face through the cloud and said, hey, I'm God and you're not. But he didn't. He chose to use man. He chose to use you and I. We're his ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And then here it is, verse 21. Listen carefully. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became sin for you and I. The Bible doesn't say Jesus ever sinned, but he actually took on sin. He took it on. He became sin for us so that in him that is in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. The great exchange, there it is. He takes his sinless life, puts it on our account, takes our sinful life to Calvary. That's incredible. Now Galatians chapter 2. Just a couple books to the right there. Actually one book to the right. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 and 21. Listen to Paul writing to the church in the province of Galatia. Chapter 2, verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Again, God left us here. He didn't just save us and, and snatch us home. Although I believe that day's coming soon. Maybe individually, maybe collectively, but... That day's coming soon when he's going to snatch us home. But listen to this. He says, The life that I live here in the body, Paul says, While I'm still here, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's the ransom part of it. He gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. That's important that you and I remember that because people will lay this law trip on you. You've got to do this, and now you've got to do that, and now you've got to do this, and now you've got to do... That doesn't make you righteous. It doesn't make you righteous. I talked about that here one night. I said, you know, if I'm, if I'm so many inches tall, and you take a measuring tape, and, and you, know, you say, well, you know, we want you to be six foot tall in order to be the minister here, and I'm only five, ten and a half, if, if I start eating the tape measure, that's not going to make me any taller. You understand? The Word of God is, is the law, is, is the tape measure. It's the measure. It's our measuring stick. But, but you, you're not going to get taller by eating the tape measure. You understand? If there was any way, if righteousness could have been gained through the law, then Christ went to the cross for nothing. He was crucified for nothing. I don't believe he was. We've got two more to hit here. First Peter. First Peter. This time you've got to go several books to the right. First Peter chapter 1. Peter really nails it here. I love this. First Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Do us well to read all the in-betweens too. But in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, verse 18, Peter says this, For you know 
that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. By the way, those of you that weren't born, born again, which is all of you, know what that means. The empty way of life. God rescued us from an empty way of life, didn't he? And that's what Peter's talking about here. He says, from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was received, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believed in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Once again, not silver and gold. He didn't purchase us with silver and gold, but the precious blood of Christ, a lamb. So now you're getting the picture. And one more. First Peter, this time chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Wow. When Jesus said to the disciples, follow me, where was he going? To the cross, wasn't he? He says, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you this example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Is that cool? Listen, some people say, well, how could he be God and the Son of God? You know, how could he be both? And who was he talking to on the cross when he said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If he was God in the flesh, if he was holy God, then how could he be holy man? How could he be both? That's a pretty complex question, but as I'm reading this, I'm going in the same way that he could be the lamb and the shepherd. Do you see it? He's the lamb who was the shepherd. How do you reconcile that? How do you reconcile anything that God does other than the fact that he's God and I'm not? I mean, this is incredible stuff. And so why did I do this? Why did I go through this? Because once I get into the reading of this account... In the life of Christ, I'm, I'm going to make a few comments tonight on the text, but not many, because I want the text to speak for itself. And I want it for you to get a grasp tonight of the person and the work of Jesus Christ before we read this account. Now, you've been through this gospel many times before. And Matthew here, as he goes through this, uh, this account of the last hours of Jesus, life here on earth is kind of brief compared to some of the other gospels. So you'll be thinking about 
things and, and, and there'll be points that are filled in that, that maybe aren't in Matthew's gospel. And I, I'll make a couple of brief comments, but I really want this text to speak for itself tonight, okay? So let's turn back to Matthew chapter 27. In fact, I'm going to take up with verse 1, even though we read the first 10 verses last week. So I'm going to read through this, chapter 27 and 28 tonight. And I just want to let the text speak for itself, okay? Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and he left. Then he went away and he hanged himself. The chief priests picked up the coins and said, it's against the law to put this into the treasury since it's blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it's been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 silver coins, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Actually, that, that's a, a quote uh, from Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13. I'm not really sure why it's referenced to Jeremiah other than the fact that in Jeremiah chapter 19, the first 13 verses of Jeremiah 19, it's almost like a combination of the two portions of Scripture put together. But was this misquoted? Was it mistranslated? Is it a copyist error that it's it's given to uh, Jeremiah? I'm not really sure. I can't really answer that. All I know is sometimes I I listen to my tapes and, um, and I'll say, you know, Moses, when I mean Noah or vice versa or you know I'll say Elijah when I mean Ezekiel or you know it's but I'm not really sure although if you read Jeremiah 19 the first 13 verses it's it's very intriguing also Jeremiah chapter 32 verses 6 through 9 um, talking about the potter's field so here you have the chief priests chief priests and the elders of the people they come to this decision to put Jesus to death You know how they came to that decision, and so do I. Their toes were being stepped on. They were afraid of losing their position. In fact, when we get into Pilate talking uh, about the situation, he says it was because of envy that they handed Jesus over. And I want you to know something. We, as human beings, are no more like Lucifer than when we are proud and arrogant and envious and jealous And when we start displaying those characteristics, those are the characteristics of the evil one. And so when I see these characteristics coming out in the high priest, and don't you find it interesting that here they were willing to break all these laws when it came to this mock trial 
They weren't supposed to even have this mock trial. First of all, it wasn't supposed to be in the evening. Secondly, if they came to a decision, they weren't supposed to come to a decision the same day of the trial. They were supposed to spend time in prayer. They were supposed to collect witnesses, and they got all these false witnesses coming anyway. They were willing to break all these other laws, but when it came to, oh, you know, we can't put this 30 pieces of silver in the coin box because that's against the law. Think about it. Think about the hypocrisy. Did Jesus have these guys pegged or what back in chapter 23 of Matthew? Remember him raking these guys over the coals and calling them hypocrites? Whitewashed tombs, brood of vipers? Because they were double-minded. They were, they were hypocrites. Here they are. They got it all set up. Meanwhile, so we change scenes here. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? So now, here's Jesus before Pontius Pilate, and he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Listen to how he responds. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, now watch how, how Pilate's heart um, moves here too in this whole account, because Jesus refuses to answer the high priest. They know who he is, and they're killing him anyway. He's told them many times. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony that they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Well, I guess so. How many criminals do you suppose stand before the governor and when they have an opportunity to plead their case, don't say anything? Now, it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. Remember, this is the feast of Passover. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. The other Gospels tell us he was an insurrectionist and a murderer. He's a violent guy. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? Now, it's interesting because Barabbas' name means son of the father. Bar means son of. You've heard that how many times in the Gospels? Simon Bar-Jonah. That means Simon, son of John. Bar means son of. And Abba, Abba. That's what the little, you'll hear the little kids call that to their daddies in Israel when you get over there. Abba, Abba. Barabbas. Bar-Abbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want? For he knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message, don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. You see how this whole thing was set up? Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. Well, what shall I do then with this Jesus who is called Christ? Pilate asked. And they all answered, crucify him. 
Why, what crime has he committed, Pilate asked. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Now, I want you to take a close look at verse 22 there. Because when Pontius Pilate asks, what shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Christ? I want you to know that that's a question that every human being has to face in his lifetime. And it will determine that the answer to that question that every individual gives will determine their eternal destiny. Whether they spend eternity in heaven or whether they spend eternity in hell will be determined by what shall I do then with this Jesus who is called the Messiah. What are you going to do with him? You can believe in him and you can receive him or you can deny him and you can reject him. Those are your options. Those are your options. Either either Jesus, I mean you look at the claims that Jesus made, there's a a little booklet back there called The Claims of Christ by Pastor Chuck Smith. And you look at those claims and here's what you come up with. Either the guy was a lunatic or he was a liar or he's Lord. There's no in-between. You can't say, oh, he was a good teacher. No, because anybody who made those claims would be a lunatic. You can't possibly make those claims and be a good teacher. What am I going to do? What are you going to do? What shall I do then with this Jesus who is called the Messiah? And they said, crucify him. Crucify him. Now on that handout, because I don't really have time to go into crucifixion, you understand that crucifixion was a very inhumane uh, act, and yet Jesus endured this suffering for you and I. The crucifixion, uh, there's just a, a couple of things there. The second paragraph says, death by crucifixion originated somewhere in the east. Alexander the Great seems to have learned of it from the Persians. Rome borrowed the idea from the Phoenicians through Carthage and perfected it as a means of capital punishment. Now, now understand that you can, you can read through this. It's, a, it, it's, a, it's brutal. Um, I, think it, I think we need to understand, though, what Jesus took for us. And as we go through the rest of this, if, if, uh, if we could only understand that this was only the death of a criminal. In fact, Roman citizens weren't even subject to this kind of a death. That's how heinous it was. And if you look into history, you find that they, they, they kept records of how long it took guys to die. I think the, the shortest crucifixion, this is why uh, uh, sometimes they had to break the legs of the, of the guys that were being crucified to speed the process of death because it was death by suffocation. And they kept records of how long guys would live on the cross. And with the exception of Jesus who hung on that cross for like three hours. With that exception, I think the shortest crucifixion was recorded as like 32 hours. The longest one was like 13 days. And you think about the torture. It was designed to be a slow and torturous death and they're shouting, crucify him, crucify him. But understand this. Rome had usurped the authority over the Jews for capital punishment. The Jews were not allowed to carry out capital punishment. That's why they had to get Jesus before the Romans. 
You see, even blasphemy that they were accusing him of by their own law, the death penalty was stoning. But the Jews no longer had authority to carry out capital punishment. By the way, that was prophesied back, you don't have to turn there, but back in Genesis, I just thought of this, back in Genesis chapter 49, um, in the prophecies that Jacob is, is, is blessing his 12 sons in Verse 10 of chapter 49, it says this. You don't have to turn there, but you might want to make a note of this. Genesis 49.10. It says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. Now, the rabbis at this time in history were crying out in the street because they thought that this prophecy was not fulfilled because Judah had lost the scepter. In other words, they weren't ruling themselves. There was somebody ruling over them. And it said they wouldn't lose that. They actually lost the, the right to even capital punishment. But it says that won't happen until the one comes whom it belongs to. Well, he's there. If you're reading the King James, it says until Shiloh comes till the Messiah comes. He's there. They're crucifying him. So when Pilate says, well, what am I going to do with them? They all shout the louder, crucify him, crucify him. Verse 24, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but instead that an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. By the way, that was a Jewish tradition. It goes back to Deuteronomy 21. If someone was murdered outside the city and they didn't know who did it. All of the, the cities that were close by to where they found the body of that murder victim, all the priests would have to come and, and wash their hands claiming that it was you know, we didn't take his blood. It was you know, his blood's not on our hands. And it was part of they had to offer a sacrifice and go through this hand washing ceremony. So actually Pilate is using a Jewish tradition here, saying, you know, I wash my hands in front of the crowd. I'm innocent of this man's blood, he said. It's your responsibility. And all the people answered, let his blood be on us and on our children. And then he released Barabbas. Isn't it awesome that people would accept the counterfeit son of the father, but they wouldn't receive the son of the father. He released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and he handed him over to be crucified. Now the flogging is another a whole nother issue. Flogging was... That was designed to get a confession out of a criminal. And um, 40 lashes was the law. That was the rule. As a, a criminal would confess his crimes... The torturer, the one who was applying the cat of nine tails to this guy, would go lighter and lighter as he confessed. But if he wasn't confessing, he'd go harder and harder. Well, picture Jesus in this situation where he had nothing to confess. The Bible says he opened not his mouth. He had nothing to confess. What crime had he committed? And so you know they bore down all the harder and the harder and the harder. But to show that they had mercy, they only went 39 lashes. By the time this scourging, this flogging was done, most guys didn't survive that. 
It's, it's said, if you look this up and you, and you study this out, the medical side of this, it's said that by the time they were done scourging these guys with the cat of nine tails, which was actually pieces of stone and bone and glass and nails on the end of these pieces of leather, and they would literally peel the flesh right off of a human being. And as they took this cat of nine tails to a criminal, they said by the time they were done with the 39 lashes, a lot of times even their internal organs were exposed. So most guys, so you can understand why Jesus you know, was having a hard time carrying that crossbeam to the cross, to, to Calvary. It says, Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus to the praetorium and they gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him. So not only did he take the, the scourging for us, but the the humiliation and the mocking and the, the, the they stripped him they put a scarlet robe on him and then they twisted together a crown of thorns and now stop and think of where thorns came from there weren't any thorns until the fall of man right that was part of the curse when God cursed the ground and said from now on you're going to raise these crops but you're going to do it through the thorns and the thistles, you're going to have weeds and you're going to have thorns, and you're going to. So it's part of the the sin, the whole picture here. Thorns came as a result of man's sin, Genesis three eighteen, and he set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and they knelt in front of him and they mocked him, "Hail, King of the Jews!" They said. They spit on him. And they took the staff and they struck him in the head again and again, and after they had mocked him. They took off the robe and they put on his own clothes on him and they led him away to crucify him. That's, that's incredible to me because most of the prisoners, they had to drive or drag to Golgotha, to Calvary. Jesus, they led. They led him. And as they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon. Cyrene is in the north of Africa named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha. Those of you that are going with us will see that just outside the Damascus gate there and um, near the garden tomb. A place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. It actually looks like a skull. Um, see me after class today, and I'll, I'll show it to you. There's a, I got some pictures of it. It actually, the side of the hill looks like a skull. Still. Um, there they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. Uh, this was actually a, a kind of a anesthetic they offered to Jesus. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. Think about this. He's going to his own crucifixion. He refused to take any drug, any anesthetic. And when they crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. By the way, that was a placard that he had to go through the city with. Somebody carried that in front of him and then they nailed it to the cross. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. Might I just say at this point that the very fact that Jesus didn't come down from the cross proved that he was the Son of God? 
stay with me on that one. That's going to come back. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Now I want you to think about something. Verse 42, he saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. You want to know the reality of that? He could have saved himself, but if he had, he wouldn't have saved others. You see, I think that the chief priests, these priests, even though they were wicked men, because of the very office, sometimes these guys would prophesy. Remember Caiaphas prophesied, and he said it's better that one man die for the, the whole nation than for, you understand? Even though they're evil, the very position God honors and allows them to prophesy. And here these guys are, it's, this is actually a prophecy. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. And the reality of that was, I mean, it's a, it's a deep truth. He couldn't save himself because if he did, he wouldn't be able to save all of us. That's unbelievable. And yet, I believe it. I believe it because that's just the nature and the character of Jesus. He loved us so much that he took our place. And from the sixth hour, that would be noon, till the ninth hour, it's about three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land and by the way, that wasn't a, an eclipse because you know that during the Passover, this is a full moon. The moon's in the wrong position to be, in a, to be an eclipse. This was, this was supernatural, what took place here, this darkness. From the sixth hour to the ninth hour, darkness came over the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, maybe for those who believed in him, he recited that first verse of Psalm 22 as if to say, go back and read Psalm 22, run that through your heart and mind because you'll have a picture of what's going on here. On the other hand, Jesus was rejected by his own father because he took our sins and he went in our place to Calvary. That's the only reason that he was separated from his father by taking on our sins. And I know there's a lot of wacky doctrines out there about how Jesus had to go into hell and suffer in hell and all that stuff. Even Calvin and his institute state that Jesus suffered three days in hellfire. No, I think it was right here on the cross because otherwise he wouldn't have been able to say, it is finished. Tetelestai, it is finished. He wouldn't have been able to say that. And he wouldn't have been able to look at that other thief on the cross and say, today you'll be with me in paradise. So don't buy into those wacky doctrines about Jesus having to... Uh, Kenny Copeland was the one that was saying that uh, Jesus this, called him a slimy little worm in hell. You know, and I just I cringe when I hear that stuff. You know, be careful of that. That's, that's, that's not true. It's not scriptural. There's no... There's no evidence for that. There are some, uh, some verses in, uh, in Ephesians and, and elsewhere where it talks about uh, the Lord um, setting captivity 
free, you know. But I want you to understand that 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 is uh, not what these doctrines proclaim. Jesus didn't go in. Jesus didn't have to go into hell and be born again. Okay, those are false teachings. Don't buy into it. When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. And the rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And notice how clear that is. He gave up his spirit. Jesus laid his life down. And he picked it up again, just like he said. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. I think there's a good reason for that. Top to bottom simply tells me that man had nothing to do with it. This thing is some 80 feet high, this curtain, 18 inches thick. You couldn't pull this thing apart with a team of oxen, and all of a sudden, instantly, from top to bottom, it was torn. It was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split and the tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. Can you imagine the terror of that? They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city. And by the way, that's not Rome, that's Jerusalem. And appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely this was the Son of God. Many women there watching from a, were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. And among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and that would be the wife of uh, Clopas, and the mother of Zebedee's sons, that's James and John's mom, Salome. wonder what she's thinking. Remember her prayer? Lord, could one of my sons be on your right hand and one on your left when you enter your kingdom? wonder what she's thinking now, looking at these two thieves, one on either side of Jesus, going, boy, am I glad Jesus didn't answer my prayer. Those would be my two sons hanging there. As evening approached, verse 57, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph. This is kind of cool because that garden tomb that we'll be visiting when we're in Israel, has that plot of ground has been traced all the way back through the documents to Joseph of Arimathea. It's pretty cool. This man named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus, going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance of the tomb, and he went away. Now you might be saying, well, you know, how come it was so easy for this one guy to roll the stone in front of the tomb, but it took an angel to roll it away? Well, when you get there, you'll understand why, because there's a kind of a track, and then all of a sudden when it gets to the opening of the tomb, it drops down into this this track. So it's rolling along real easy, real easy. All of a sudden, boom, you know, you're not moving it. That's where it's going to stay. And and so as we go along here, that, that might make a little sense to you. I, I really couldn't make sense of that until I saw it up close. And by the way, the stone isn't there anymore. I think tourists probably just kind of chipped away at it until it was, now they got 
even when you get walk in the tomb, they have like uh, wrought iron bars and stuff, so you can't go in there because otherwise people just souvenir guys would just take wouldn't be anything there. It'd be a big hole in the ground. Well, Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean linen cloth, placed it in a new tomb he'd cut out of the rock, rolled a big stone in front of the entrance of the tomb, and he went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, no, these are the guys, listen to these guys, they never give up. After three days I will rise again. They're calling Jesus the deceiver. After three days I'll rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. The last deception will be worse than the first. Now think about this. Because there's stories going around now that Jesus never died. Somebody, somebody died in his place and and he married Mary Magdalene, and he went off, and you know, I mean, there's all these like weird. But here, it tells you right here that these guys knew he was dead, and they said, "Put a guard there. Put a guard there, because the last deception will be worse than first. Take a guard." Pilate answered, "Go make the tomb as secure as you know how." So they went and they made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting a guard. And that wasn't just one guard. You can do a little... It was a, a guard of Roman soldiers. That's what it was. After the Sabbath, at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. Now this is the other Mary. That's the wife of Clopas again. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. Now I want you to know that he didn't roll the stone so Jesus could get out. You understand Jesus didn't need, Jesus could have gone through the stone. You understand what I mean? Because he talked about the locked doors and, and, and Jesus just appeared in the room and stuff like that and appeared. And, and he didn't need somebody to roll the stone away. The angel rolled the stone away so that the, the ladies and Peter and John, when they came, could look in there. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been able to get in. So he didn't have to roll it so Jesus could get out. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, The women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He's risen just as he said. And you saw last week how many times he said he was going to rise from the dead. Come and see the place where he lay. And then go quickly and tell his disciples, he's risen from the dead and he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I've told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy. You can understand. The emotions running high. And they ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings. <laughs> he said, I love that. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to him, Do not be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee where they will see me. And while the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests met with the elders to devise a plan, these guys are still at it. Now what are we going to do? Work something else out. 
So they devised a plan, and they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. Well, they'd have to, because if they went asleep on their guard and somebody got through, they'd be dead. You know, so they got it all worked out. They got this plan devised. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed, and this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples went into Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Oh, man. Incredible, incredible account, especially when you take this account and you look at it alongside the other synoptic gospels. It is incredible. It, it's, it's like, it, it's like a, a couple of hands coming together and just, I mean, it fits like a glove. It's unbelievable. And yet, the Lord took these guys, these 11, and said, I'm going to use you and I'm going to give you this ministry of reconciliation. That's what we talked about at the beginning of the study. Just like you and I are sitting here today and going, what are we going to do with Jesus? What are we going to do? Are we going to cower in a corner somewhere? No, because the Lord has given us His boldness. He's given us His Holy Spirit. He's given us the ministry of reconciliation. And He says, I want you to go. Make disciples. And so that's what we do. How do you do that? Teach them the Word. Pray. Fellowship. Break bread together. That's what discipleship is. And when you begin to practice those things, and you begin to take God's Word seriously, we take just what we read in Matthew's Gospel. Don't forget this either. Matthew, I mean, it's a Gospel, which means good news. Matthew means the gift of God. This is the good news of the gift of God. He's given us this in the last 28 chapters that we've gone over verse by verse and the Lord's put it in our heart and I'll tell you something when God's word not only when you get into God's word but when God's word gets into you guess what happens you begin to grow you begin to mature and then you tell somebody and then they want to grow and they want to be discipled and so you take them under your wing pray about it that's my prayer for this inductive Bible study training that we're going to start next week my prayer is that some home fellowships will come out of this so that, so that some home Bible studies will come out of this. And you're not afraid to tackle it. God doesn't want us to depend on some man to spoon feed us. He wants us to have direct connection with him. By the way, that's what Jesus died to do away with. That whole thing of the, the priesthood and the, you know, when the veil was torn from top to bottom, that was an invitation. That was an invitation for each one of us to come into the Holy of Holies. 
for each one of us to be able to pray and for e- you know whenever somebody gets this idea that well you know I'll call the pastor and I'll have him pray for me because certainly he has a direct connection that's not true I mean it's true but God doesn't want you know I'm not the intercessor I'm not the mediator you need to understand there's only one mediator between God and man and that's the man Jesus Christ so my prayer is for you and for myself, that I would understand the depth of what Jesus did for us. And I'd like to just close with a prayer tonight and ask the Lord to seal that in our hearts. Can we do that? Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to take up your word every day. And Lord, you've made it so convenient for us that even when we're driving we can we can be feeding on your word whether by CDs or tapes or and Lord you've given us your written word and you've given us your Holy Spirit you've given us your discernment and Father I thank you for that and I pray that you would use us just use this handful of people here tonight Lord to reach out to our neighborhoods and our communities with your word because we know that you've given us Jesus, you've given us your word, you've given us your truth. Lord, we do believe. And tonight we know what we're going to do with Jesus. We're going to believe on him because we know, Father, that he's the one that you sent. And I thank you, Lord, for the example. I pray now that you'd... uh, Fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord. Cleanse us of our sin. Lead us in the way everlasting. And, and Father, above all else, Lord, give us the courage to walk in your steps, the paths that you have for us. Lord, we trust in you. We don't lean on our own understanding. We know where that goes. Father, we just trust in you. We know that you're going to make our paths straight. We bless your name tonight. In the precious name of Jesus. And all God's kids said, Amen. Amen.